church, if you'll turn again with me to 1 Peter in chapter 5. Your bulletin says that today we will be looking at verses 8 and 9. After quite a bit of study this week, I felt pressed to just look at verse 8 with you today. Um, we will look at verse 9 in two weeks. I mentioned last week that Wendell Schrock is going to be filling the pulpit as uh, Jeremy Bergman and myself are going to be out of town next week with our missions opportunity. And we'll be down in Florida talking about what we might do with overseas missions. So Wendell will fill the pulpit for us next week. And the following week, I'll pick back up with verse 9, which deals primarily with how we can handle the enemy that comes against us. But today I want to look principally at our adversary, our enemy, the devil. In order to provide some context though, I'll begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. Remember that these are the words of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, God will... The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to a text where your inspired writer warns us about a very real and present danger. Lord, Luther's encouragement in the song we just sang, I pray that it would ring in our ears. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Lord, I pray that we would not leave this morning fearing the devil, but fearing God and resisting the devil. Lord, Make us aware of his schemes this morning so that we might know how he seeks to undermine, attack, and destroy each one of us and this church 
that meets here, Christ the King. Please make this, the preaching and teaching of your word, effectual, and that your people might hear it and be fed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I, I think most of you know at this point that my favorite author is Clive Staples Lewis. And of all of the books that he's written, it's likely that the one that I've gleaned the most from is The Screwtape Letters. It's not my favorite by a long shot. It certainly wasn't Lewis's either. He said of The Screwtape Letters, having written it, Though I've never written anything more easily, I never wrote with less enjoyment. Nevertheless, having been raised in an ocean of materialism with 12 years of public indoctrination into the creed of the universe is all there ever is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be, this short book by Lewis helped me to grasp the biblical reality that not only is our enemy real and unseen, he is a seasoned veteran at hunting the children of God. He's had about 6,000 years of practice at this. The more preparation I put into this sermon, the more I sensed that God wanted us to look at the identity and role that our enemy plays in our lives. This sermon, especially towards the end, is meant to inform. As I mentioned in my prayer, it is not meant to frighten. My goal is to, as Paul puts it, make sure that Satan does not outwit us. And how do we do that? Well, I hope to make you ready because you are no longer ignorant of his designs. That's the goal of what we're dealing with in verse 8 this morning. And I think that's what Peter wants us to see in verse 8. He says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now I'll say at the outset that anytime you deal with the unseen realm, you need to be aware of two common errors. Number one, people get obsessed with the spiritual world. People obsess over it. A Christian should never walk away from a message like this morning where we're talking about the unseen realm and the devil or when we talk about angels or heaven or hell with an inordinate craving for the secret things of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says, the secret things I've kept for myself, those don't belong to you. But Christians today say, I want to know everything about it. I want to know how many angels there are, how many demons there are, where do they hide, how do they fight, what kind of weapons do they use, and what armor upgrades do they get when they unlock their prestige. It's my nerd side coming out. Thank you all for getting the joke. But you all know that people do obsess over this kind of stuff. God has given us a window into this world, but that's all that it is. It's a window. Right here, Peter just pulls the curtain back a little bit to remind you what's going on. The line between curiosity and idolatry is often finer than we care to admit. So be warned. Obsession. Avoid it. Also, ignorance. The other equal but opposite error is ignorance. And by ignorance, this morning I mean to say ignorance. You pay no attention. You disregard the spiritual stuff as a lot of hocus-pocus silliness. 
Nobody should get to the end of 1 Peter and think that this little bit about the ravenous lion isn't really a big deal. I ask you this. If there were a real lion, or maybe to colloquialize, we had a bear outside in the parking lot after church today, and you knew that your kids were down in the creek looking for crawdads, it probably wouldn't take a lot from the security team to come in here and get your attention and get you out there. It's a serious threat. And that's exactly the way that Peter wants us to see this. Here's the thing, beloved. To this point in the letter, Peter has been addressing the main concern of the dispersion churches. He's been talking about how to live in a world where everyone hates your guts and they openly persecute you and you're still supposed to act like a Christian. That's what he's been dealing with to this point. But he concludes his writing by drawing their attention to an oft-forgotten player in this divine drama, the malevolent in God's greatest story ever told. He speaks of what was spoken of in Genesis 3, the dragon. This isn't a throwaway last-minute thought. Oh, yeah, don't forget the devil. As his readers transition from casting their anxieties on a benevolent Christ who cares deeply for them and a sense of relief comes over them, Peter once again raises the alarm. It's as if he's saying, yes, cast all your anxieties on God. He cares deeply about what happens to you, but don't let that make you complacent. Remember, you're still in the middle of a war. There is more to the Christian life. Beloved, if, I could, if you could leave here this morning knowing one thing about this text of Scripture, I want you to know this. There is more to the Christian life than you dealing with your sin and your trying to be sanctified out of it. There is more to face than your enemies in this world and your strivings to endure sufferings and persecutions for Jesus. There is more than just how you react to and deal with the sin of your brothers and sisters in this church. There are more layers to the Christian life than your private devotions and your public professions. Your dream to start a business in Anderson County or to start a women's shelter or your 500-year plan, plan for your family heritage or whatever it is, there is more to the Christian life than this. Peter is saying to us, you have an enemy. He is an objective, alive, and active reality that is more elusive than a nocturnal king of the beasts and far more deadly. This one opposes you at every turn. He has one job. We'll get to the details of what that is here in just a minute to which he is sadistically devoted. Pastor Charles Leiter who I've gleaned a lot of encouragement on this particular passage of Scripture from, says, even if you had no sin whatsoever to deal with in your own heart, you would still face mighty opposition from the outside to, live in, to living the Christian life. Consider briefly the Lord Jesus, who was perfectly sinless and yet faced more spiritual opposition than any of us will ever dream of. As the new and better Adam, he faced not what Adam did, a few moments perhaps of peace in a garden of paradise 
only to end up falling into sin. But Jesus faced 40 days in the wilderness with no food and, miraculously, no water and was tempted on at least three different occasions by Satan himself. And being the new and better Adam, he still resisted the temptation to sin. What is Peter saying to the early church? This fight is not over. It is complex. There is an invisible international conflict continuing throughout the church age, and it is being waged on more than one battlefront. And you have got to keep your wits about you. You have got to stay awake. The natural question in a briefing like this would be, who is our enemy? Peter describes him in three different ways. He says he is an adversary, he is the devil, and he is like a lion. I want to look at each of these three words to help you understand more about who opposes us and how we can resist him. The first term, translated adversary in most translations, is the Greek word antidikos, which means one who opposes, an enemy, or most importantly, likely, an accuser. This is the only time this noun is used to describe the devil in the Bible, but it is not unique. It's roughly the equivalent of the Hebrew term Satan or Satan, which means one who withstands. Peter had first-hand combat experience against him. When he had to face the mobs coming for Jesus in the garden, or when he was faced with the temptation to deny knowing the Lord, remember what Jesus had said to him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, glorious but, I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. That's from Luke 22. During those final hours of Christ's life, the adversary was constantly working against Peter to destroy his faith in Christ. Now I mentioned that this word means accuser. That's because this word adversary carries legal connotations with it. Let me give you a few examples from the Gospels. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, you see the accusation is made on legal grounds. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. In Luke 18, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to the judge and saying, give me justice against my adversary or accuser. You know in the Old Testament that Satan opposes Job in chapters 1 and 2. You know that he opposes the high priest Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3. And he lives to persecute the whole church of Christ. We see that in Revelation Chapter 12, that passage reads, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ, of His Christ, have come. For the accuser, that's the noun form, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them, verb, day and night before our God. You get the idea. Satan loves and lives for this. 
His modus operandi is accusation. And these charges are an attempt to persuade Almighty God on legal grounds. Now, this is a really poor illustration. But occasionally, I do find myself in some kind of waiting room, whether I'm at a car shop waiting on my car to get fixed or I'm at a doctor's office. For whatever reason, it never fails. The TV is always turned on to Judge Judy. Okay? I don't know if you've ever watched an episode of Judge Judy before. I regularly bring my headset with me so that I can work and not pay attention to the TV. But there are occasions when my interest is piqued and I want to see what the hearing is all about, the, the crazy antics going on in the, in the people's courtroom, right? I don't really know where they get the people that come on these shows. The start of the show says, the plaintiffs are real, the cases are real, and the decisions are real. And I'm here to tell you that it takes a lot of faith to believe that. 24-year-old single woman sues former college roommate for over the course of three months stealing her bovine colostrum supplements. Where do they get this stuff? Uh, brothers and sisters, think about it. Day and night, Satan stands to accuse you before the Father. And what he comes up with is mostly nonsense. It's like a never-ending episode of Judge Judy. It's foolishness. But it is real. It's not reality TV. It's actually happening right now. It's ongoing. He is seeking to persuade our God that we are unworthy of eternal life. Now, full stop. This should be a sweet reminder to you of the rock of assurance that you have in Jesus Christ. Every accusation that Satan brings against you, God listens to. And then he checks it against your record in Christ. And every time he sees, not guilty. Amen. Not guilty. This is the truth of everyone here today who is in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. Think about that in the courtroom of heaven. We often think about that condemnation we feel in our hearts. In the courtroom of heaven where Satan stands to accuse you day and night, there's no condemnation. He cannot bring a credible charge that has any claim on you. Your justification, that is your legal declaration of your status before God, is the most untouchable character description of you in the universe. No amount of accusation can even begin to taint your record before God. But I tell all of you here today who are not in Christ, who have not repented of your sin, who have not turned to Jesus, that is not true of you. That is not true of you. If today you are here and you are resisting God's Holy Spirit who through the inspired Word of God has told you about your sin, God's righteousness, and your need of a Savior. And to this point you have said, no, I will have none of it. In the courtroom of heaven, God can open that book and look and He can see guilty, 
guilty, guilty. Today is the day, beloved. Today is the day. Friend, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, today is the day. That record can be wiped completely clean. Isaiah chapter 1, though our sins be as scarlet, He can wash them as white as snow. This morning, in the throne room of heaven, God can open that book. If by faith in Christ alone you trust Jesus, He opens that book and He sees, finally, not guilty. Not guilty. But you must come to Christ. We talked about on Friday night, discerning a child's salvation. Jeremy brought some excellent words of encouragement to our men on how to determine the status of your child before God, whether or not their faith is truly genuine or real. Let me tell you, the number one thing you're looking for in anyone, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? I tithe. I come to church. I do all these good deeds. I know a lot about God. I can tell you about Reformed theology. I went to the courthouse the other day with you all. No, 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 no. Listen, what did you do with Jesus? None of that will erase your guilt. And honestly, it just gives Satan more to talk about. You need Christ. And if you repent today, you can have Him. The free offer still stands. There's nothing that bars the way for anybody coming to Christ except to humble yourself before Almighty God and come in faith and repentance. Well, beloved, Satan surely is our accuser. He is our adversary. But notice in verse 8, Peter goes on to qualify what he says. In your translation of the Bible, in every translation of the Bible, they never translate this word the right way. They never translate this word correctly. And you, you miss Peter's intended point in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil. Now that's very familiar to all of us. We hear the name devil and we think, okay, I recognize that character. He's the player I'm familiar with. And if all he were up to were accusations before the throne of heaven, accusations which, as I mentioned, fall flat on Christians because of the triumph of Jesus Christ, Peter wouldn't even need to raise our awareness of what's actually going on, the mischief that he's up to. But he qualifies antidikos, that, that title of accuser, with another title. And devil is not the right way to translate it. It's the New Testament, it's the most common New Testament name for Satan. That is the word diabolos. Most translations, again, use the word devil. You can hear the word diabolical in that word. But the term is literally slanderer or one who slanders. So Peter says, your accuser, the slanderer. Now, you, you know right then. What he has to say about me, it's untrue. It's completely not true. Why? Because he lives to slander. He's one who gives a false report. He twists the truth. He lies. Jesus told us what? He's the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his own language. Every time you read the word devil in the New Testament... 
you should read the word slanderer. And it'll make sense of a lot of passages when you read it that way. The early church was under all kinds of fire, both in this realm and in the unseen realm. The devil's primary role in trying to destroy Peter's church and in trying to destroy ours as well is that he slanders. His charges are bogus, they are contrived, they are erroneous, they are without full and reliable support. God sees right through them, but in the heat of struggle, in the midst of persecution, what, what happens? We forget these things. That person's irritating me. Oh, I think these thoughts about them. Or what about that? We forget. Wait, this battle's being played on more than one level. Peter wouldn't forget. He told the Lord Jesus to his face that he would never go to the cross and die a martyr's death. And the Lord turns around and responds to him, Get behind me, Satan. It shouldn't shock us that Jesus said that to his chief apostle. Jesus knew where that comment came from. No, Peter was not possessed by the devil. But he also wasn't alert at this point to the activity of Satan in opposition to the kingdom of Jesus and how effective he can be at subtly influencing the children of God. My primary goal this morning is that you leave here alert, aware of his designs. And I want to come back to this term slanderer here in just a minute and spend the bulk of our time there. But briefly, let's look at the term a roaring lion. Peter says... Your adversary, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remember, in Peter's day, there were no zoos. There are no tame lions. Wild lions, frequently. Christians thrown to the lions, occasionally. So this one carries a different kind of weight in Peter's day. For years, our family has been gifted with zoo passes. My favorite exhibit as a child growing up, always, always the lions and the tigers. It's the closest that I'm going to get to seeing one of these animals outside of getting on a plane and going on an African safari. The problem with the lions at the K-Town Zoo is that they're really boring. <laughs> really boring. <laughs> they lay around on a stone dais all day in the sun and the most exciting thing you might see is they get up and stretch or maybe yawn. I asked a zookeeper one time if this is how captivity affects their natural instincts. And he said, actually, you'd be surprised. The ferocity is still there. At the Knoxville Zoo, every morning at 530, they'll go in, drop a big slab of meat, and then the lions go for it. He said, if there were little kids here, it would terrify them. It's scary. They fight over it, trying to get the food. It's about 15 minutes of, 15 minutes of feeding, feeding frenzy, and then they lay back down for a nap the rest of the day. Peter's churches would have had a much healthier respect for lion imagery. His intention here is to show that the adversary who lives to slander, yes, post-cross, has the power to make a significant impact on the church. That's where that devouring language comes in. Now you might say at this point, but Chris, I thought that Satan was bound post-cross. 
Peter says that he's still on the prowl. What gives, man? You may remember a moment in the life of the Lord Jesus when he was accused of working for Satan. Having cast out a demon, Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of only doing this by the power of Satan. And he, of course, our Lord points out the logical inconsistency. He says a house divided against itself will fall apart. And then he said something really important. He said, if you're going to break into a man's house and steal his stuff, you have to tie up the man who owns the house. You have to tie up the strong man. He was talking about Satan. This tying up of the strong man, Christ did when he defeated sin and death on the cross. He said in John chapter 12, the ruler of this world is getting ready to be cast out. He took away Satan's world dominion and also his power to possess the hearts of Christ's people. Hallelujah. But that doesn't mean that he is powerless to influence the church. And that's what Peter wants to focus on here. Just because he's cast out, just because he doesn't have this world dominion anymore, doesn't mean he's a non-issue. In the third stage of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is traveling to the house of the Lord on the hill. He's confronted right before he gets to the door with two lions standing watch on either side of the narrow way that he's on. He fears greatly and hesitates to proceed. And then Bunyan writes these words. The lions were on a chain, but Christian did not see the chains that constrained the ferocious beasts. Then Christian hears the cries of Watchful, the doorkeeper of the house, call him forward. He says, They are placed there to test your faith at this point in the journey. They also show clearly those who have no faith. So stay in the middle of the path and you will not be harmed. And of course, if you've read this story, Christian does walk. The lions try and jump for him, but the chains hold them back. And he's able to pass safely as he walks straight forward. Is Satan bound? Yes, absolutely. Is he allowed to remain diabolicalizing in order to test your faith? Yes, he is. Like Bunyan, Peter didn't want his churches focusing on the chains right now. If you get close enough to a chained lion, it can still do a lot of damage. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at how he will likely operate in our context. How does Satan prowl around and attempt to devour the saints at Christ the King? Primarily, as I mentioned, through slander. Peter literally says, your adversary, the slanderer, goes about like a lion. Jesus said, as I mentioned earlier, he is the father of lies. How does his slander affect this fellowship? Four different ways. First, he slanders man to God. Now, I mentioned this earlier, how Satan stands day and night before God to accuse the church. I don't need to spend too much more time on this one. It's not the kind of slander that Peter is here addressing, but you need to be aware of this ongoing reality. Every time God closes a court case presented by the devil, 
He already has another one ready. Consider the words of Paul in Hebrews chapter 7. He says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. Now think about that in the context of the accuser of the brethren, day and night. Jesus ever lives to intercede, not just because of our sin and our need for grace ongoing, but because we have an opponent and we need the prayers of Christ as Peter did that our strength might not fail. Well, the second way, this is where we get into the nitty-gritty. First, he slanders man to God, flip it around. He slanders God to man. Satan loves bastards. He craves fatherlessness, especially a fatherless bride of Christ. When he slanders God to you, he's trying to sever that relationship by telling you that you can't trust God. When did he first try that trick? Yep, the opening chapters of Genesis. When the serpent first spoke to Eve, what did he say? Did, did God really say? He called into question the commandment that God had given to Adam. After Eve attempts to set the record straight, Satan counters again with slander. Oh, you won't die. God lied to you. You won't die. You can't trust him. God's holding out on you. He's keeping back his best from you. Don't you see that you're at the kiddie table? You have to eat the Brussels sprouts and he gets the pecan pie? You can imagine the tactics that he might use against Peter's church. Come on, man. Is this really what you signed up for? Isn't God's kingdom better than all this trouble that he's brought on you? You're missing out. Peter and the other apostles have money dumped at their feet. Where's your share? God doesn't love you. He only plans to make you eat dirt. Now, brothers, there isn't one person in this room that has not experienced something like this at some point in your life. If you were in Christ, you have heard these things whispered to you. He attacks the trustworthiness of God and His Word. He tells you that God's will won't bring you happiness. That obedience is a life of boredom and slavery. That God won't answer your prayers. So there's no point in praying anyway. Or maybe God will answer your prayers, but He'll do the opposite of what you want because He knows better, right? And what's the point of praying anyway? God's not going to tell you what His will is. You're just His pawn, remember? You'll probably get a whooping just for asking Him. He lives to find out your sin and then drill you for it. Let's say there's a young woman here in the church today, who's eager to marry, she's waiting on God's timing. Waiting is hard. So she prays to cast all her anxieties on God because He cares for her. And she says, God, I give my life over to you. Whomever you want me to marry, I will trust you. And then immediately what happens? Satan says, oh, don't do that. You're going to get the ugliest guy in the world can't trust God. Why would you give your life to Him like that? Then you'll be stuck with Him. 
Now, you know that that's true. You know you hear things like that. Satan will take this route with you every morning when you wake up to pray. And Jesus knows that we would be tempted in this way. And that's why he already dealt with this issue in the Gospels. He said, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, would instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask Him? Jesus knew we'd be tempted in this way. He knew the slanderer was going to accuse the Father. He told us, no, you can trust God. Now, I'm going to talk about tactics for resistance in a few weeks, but how did Jesus fight the devil's slander? With the Word of God. He was grounded in the truth of God's Word, and he knew how to refute the enemy's claims. Okay, so he slanders us to God. He slanders God to us. Now, consider that he slanders us to one another. What is this prowling lion up to? Devouring you in slander in order to upset your faith and the unity of the church. Jesus told us that the house divided would fall. He told us that the wolf comes in to snatch and then scatter sheep. Notice that. He snatches first, devour, and then scatters. Satan constantly sows division in the body of Christ through the most insignificant things, and it's always based on slander. I mentioned Charles Leiter earlier. He told the story of a summer job he once had working on a farm with a fellow elder at his church. And they were given tasks on the farm at opposite ends, and they didn't see each other until the end of work that day. All day in the hot sun, Leiter remembers thinking thoughts like, Man, that guy's got it so easy. I'm, I bet he's in the shade right now. I bet they brought him lemonade for lunch. Truth was, his co-elder on the opposite end of the farm was having the exact same thoughts all day long. And when they came together at the end of the day, they both immediately confessed it to each other. Brother, I'm sorry, but I've been having some uncharitable thoughts about you today. I've been entertaining thoughts from the slander that I should not have entertained. And they both confessed it to each other, realized he was playing the same game on both of us. Why? He's trying to divide the sheep of God. He's trying to divide the flock. That's what he does. Think about those moments when you're tempted with uncharitable thoughts about something so small on a Sunday morning. Man, look at that. Pastor Chris just shook that couple's hand when he walked into church this morning. And then he walked right by you and your wife, and he didn't even say hi. He's got to have something against you. Now, y'all know stuff like that happens. You're new here, and no one's even tried to get to know you. Come on, man, you're in the wrong church. Can you believe she just said that? And after what her daughter said to yours, what a tramp. You better tell your husband to stay away from that family. Those guys always sit at the same table every single week. They always sit together. They never invite you. Yeah, it's because they all used to go to church together. What a click. The elders don't recognize your gifts, and they're holding you back from all that God wants you to do. It's time to do something about it. All those pictures... They posted on Instagram of the get-together that you weren't invited to. You know it's because they don't like you. 
Hey, you might as well scroll back up to that girl in the sports bra. This church is getting so big so fast. They're going to have to plant before too long, and then they're going to ask you to move. And you just bought a house here. Come on now. Come on now. You know that's real. Brothers and sisters, this is why Peter says, be alert. Snap out of it. This is a trance he puts us in. This is the beginning of the root of bitterness. This is where it comes from. This is how he snatches us. We are not enemies of one another here. Jesus told us, take your swords and what? Beat them into plowshares. You won't need a sword anymore in this church. These suggestions in our mind that someone has it out for you or that you're the only one dealing with X or they all think Y about you, we have got to put those away. We have got to lay down our arms. Don't let him win these fights. Don't take the bait. On more than one occasion, I've had members reach out to me and I've also reached out to members of this church for clarification that a sin or an offense had not taken place. If you sense there's something uneasy, just say so. Look, I, can I just get clarification on something? So often, that just settles the issue. Oh, it was slander. The enemy was working. I didn't need to think those thoughts about her or him or those folks. Get it rid. Well, lastly, he slanders you to yourself. For some of you, this is the one that you feel the most acutely. You don't need anyone to confirm your inadequacy and your weakness. In the battlefield of your mind, the catapults of slander just keep firing. Christ dealt with these same kinds of accusations. Be encouraged. He had to listen to the slanderer say to him, Hey, by the way, if you're the son of God, do X. Prove it. He had to listen to slander. The Lord Jesus, who had no sin and yet had to endure all sorts of slander, faced personal accusations from the devil. And he's going to attack us personally. Maybe you've heard some things like this before. You're never going to make any progress in the Christian life. You will never get over that sin. How long have you been following Jesus? How many times have you asked for forgiveness for the same thing? Do you really think repentance is that easy? Do you really think He's forgiven you? Jesus never died for you. You'll never amount to anything in the kingdom of God. Your business will fail. Why did you even take that job anyway? Look at how God uses that brother or that sister. You don't have any gifts like that. You'll never be able to speak so boldly. You'll never serve in that way. Hey man, how can you expect your wife to submit to you when you keep sinning against her? Don't ask her to apologize. You did the same thing. Remember the whole thing about the log in your eye? When are you going to get rid of yours? You're such a hypocrite. Are you keeping count of how many times you've sinned against your children? How could they listen to your gospel message now? They've heard it so many times and they haven't listened. How is this time any different? You've shown them that they can't trust you. They're never going to come to Christ. Okay, going through all of that, I feel like I need to go take a shower. I mean, ugh, 
Those thoughts are just disgusting. But you know you live with that sometimes. You know you feel that. These are very true, and they feel very real in the moment. But brothers and sisters, they are all lies, all slander. The words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 16, Quit you like men. Act like men. Be strong. Stand firm in the faith. You have got to be ready. Well, as I conclude this morning, I remembered this week during my time of study that years ago Shane and Shane wrote a song called Embracing Accusation. And that's what it's about too. Whatever Satan says to you, you could just respond by saying, you're right and you don't know the half of it. Here's the last line of the song. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray, singing the first verse. So conveniently, he's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves. I mentioned how I'm going to go over Peter's tactics of resistance in a few weeks, but this is your primary weapon. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. I'm afflicted. I've got the poison of sin running through my veins, and he's telling me about it. Then look to the cross. Everyone who looks, healed. Healed. Why does Satan do this to us? Why does he attack us this way? Because a guilty people are a motivatable people. People who feel their guilt and feel like there's something against them can be moved, shaped, positioned in a different way. But a justified people? You can't say nothing. I don't already know. And it's all been washed away too. It's all been washed away. Rest in Christ, beloved, remembering that He who began a good work in you will bring it all the way to completion. And... No amount of slander can ever change that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. I thank you that though our enemy is very real, and as Peter says, he is looking right now for someone to devour, that in Christ we can overcome. That in Christ he is a bound creation of yours. Satan is bound. And he no longer has dominion over us. But please, Father, help us not to be ignorant of his schemes, but resist him at every turn. Let us remember how often he slanders us, how often he opposes us before you, to ourselves, to one another. Father, help us to resist him firm in our faith, Remembering that this kind of stuff is happening all over the world. We are not the only ones dealing with whatever it is he's accusing us of. Strengthen our hearts now as we go to fellowship and celebrate together. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.